Welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to Poet Lore City Lit Reading. My name's Genevieve. I'm the managing editor of Poet Lore. Before I introduce our first reader, Maya Green, I'm going to take a little moment to thank some people. First, a big thanks to Greg Wilhelm of the City Lit Project for having us here. We're always excited to make our way outside of Bethesda, which is too tiny of a place, and to celebrate Baltimore. Um, our editor, Ethelbert Miller, was telling me yesterday, Baltimore is the future. <laughs> I was like, I think it's the present, too, obviously. <laughs> it's, it's got a lot more going on than Bethesda. <laughs> but so I'm really happy to be here, and I want to give a huge thanks to Shailene Bayer of the Anak Pratt Free Library. Um, she ha- invited us to host this event, and then in September she invited us to co-sponsor a poetry contest for Maryland residents, and that contest put our two executive editors, Jody Bowles and Ethelbert Miller, in contact with poems of really astonishing power and quality, including Maya Green's poem, Responsibility, which you'll hear, and it became our first place winner. And there were two other place-winning poems, which we'll publish in the fall in our anniversary issue. It's an amazing issue to be in. I also want to thank Lisa Greenhouse, who set up an exhibit of sort of dramatic pieces and poems from Poet Lore's past issues, and Jack Young, who did the amazing window display, the graphic designer for Maya's poem. As some of you may know, Poet Lore is a biannual print journal of poetry, reviews, and essays. We're published by the Writers' Center, which is in Bethesda, and they've been in the D.C. area since the 70s. They do workshops and events and stuff. And we are Poetlores in its 125th year in print, which is a milestone in little magazine history on a shoestring budget. (laughs) We have a really rich story, and it includes decades and decades of literary discovery and a long line of dedicated editors who were really fueled by the written word. Our founders, for example, were two women. They were female, young, progressive scholars. They were life partners. They exchanged vows in addition to being co-editors, and this was in the 1880s, a radical bunch. And they began Poet Lore as a forum on Shakespeare, Browning, and comparative literature, but they opened their pages really quickly to world writers, like names we know now, like Rilke, Ibsen, Tagore, Chekhov, Verlaine, Rambeau. But at the time, Americans hadn't heard these names. They even spelled Chekhov with like an F at the end. It was like no one even knew how to deal with these people from abroad. But our founders were really on to the, the world writers. Um, today, the current editors work hard to keep up to di- the tradition. Jody has told me that she believes poetry provides a record of human feeling, a history from the inside out. And she and Ethelbert look for poems that aren't merely of or for one cultural moment, but that might outlast it. They're both poets educators and activists, and they read every poem that's submitted to the journal without regard to reputation. So we hope you'll become a submitter if you're not already, and a reader. Now on to Maya. She was chosen with great and almost instantaneous enthusiasm by both of our editors. The speaker's voice in the poem is haunting and overwhelming and demanding, and the music of it jumped off the page. She works as an independent editorial consultant and has earned a BA in liberal arts and an MFA in writing from Sarah Lawrence College. She was also a liaison for Sarah Lawrence's ninth annual poetry festival where she opened for 2012 National Book Award winner Nikki Finney, which is awesome. In a reading of hers I watched online, she is at once lulling, one who gives comfort, wisdom, and portentous, giving warning, a sense of prescience, Things described are imbued 
with an almost threatening, unexpected dimension. It's really captivating work. We're incredibly excited to have the chance to have her read this poem, and I can't wait to get to know more of her poetry as we move forward. Here's Maya Green. Thank you, Genevieve. That was really lovely. Um, I first want to thank Poet Lore, the editors of Poet Lore, and my friends and family for being here. So thank you. Um, I'm going to read a couple of poems. They tell me I have five minutes. (laughs) So they don't necessarily go together, but they stand alone. Zebra. Flanked by hyena, what wild ambulance sirens to our rescue now? Show yourself. I summon your heart, beat by my unstressed stress barter. Two-bit theatrics for word tricks, whispered legs in silk, a silly sideshow run like hell through my name. Stop desiring our hemispheres align. Again, my name on the rocks. Four shot to moon dust, lime suck salt, cold feet, clean hands, skin more red now. This end. Felled ankles, undangled, my teeth on your floor. We already know this win-win war, blood like own kin, my friend. Flu season. Um, A chair breaks and barking. Someone sat down too soon. TV on toddler tunes and a wife on the floor. And his footsteps below rattle the upstairs, the wooden belly of my apartment. Like the clatter in my chest, scraps of that chair are tumbling. Or is it the woman? Each cough song shakes down the alveoli, collapse forward this body. I wait, two beers, red elixir, and got one shot of whiskey. My offer to father liver, and the damn dog won't stop. Front door opening, a deep breath sucks close the back window. Okay. Responsibility. We cleaned our houses, moved sometimes before dirt collected. My mother with a Taurus 357 Magnum tucked under her arm at the grocery store, or rather the food pantry, galley kitchen and back of Holy Spirit. The real reason I still follow the catechism because I know what it's like to be truly hungry. 
calm sea, startled ocean. It is the man who is to blame, too, meaning boss man, meaning Ku Klux, meaning stocks and bad investments. My mother, just as many hundreds of thousands of dimes in debt as I am. We are double loops in an unending chain, child beggar, gold star report card, six kids to bathe in one outdoor tub, granny making the Frank house clean. Mama dipping snuff. Miss Johnson tells me I can always pick cotton. Feel my lips, Mom would say, my small hands pressed against her throat and mouth. Feel the vibrations, she'd say, deep south extracted from my throat before it could root. We are not of the tribe. We are a nation. Fifteen burials at every stopping place. Sickness with each mile. Little Wolf says the Shaman woman walks in front of my mother, carrying a woven blanket, white, that I am late, that I am never late. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. So Megan Foley is our next reader. I knew her poems before I did her nonfiction and felt intensely at home in her voice as if we occupied similar territory except that she navigated it with authority and a tenor that was troubling, hilarious, and electric. In her Dear Old Friend series, there are lines like, you are single and ready to mingle. You are, this is the phrase, sleeping around. The various sheets you have encountered have low thread counts. This is not a euphemism. And then there are stunning lyrical moments, too, as with the poem on a certain education, which appeared years ago on Poet Lore's pages. One line reads, They hadn't yet taught me why, surrounded so. I grew smaller, flimsier, lost angles and points. I learned to catch my words. The poetry of hers, I know, shows incredible tonal range, and so does her nonfiction, a good amount of which you can find online. Work of hers appears in the Rumpus, free-range nonfiction, Thought Catalog, Canteen Magazine, and The Village Voice. She has an MFA in creative nonfiction from Columbia University and works as a producer for Foundtrack Creative and 522 Productions. We'll present an essay of hers in our anniversary issue, and she'll share a nonfiction piece with us now. Megan Foley. <laughs> Wow, thank you so much. Um, it's really nice to be here with you guys today. Um, yeah, I, I first heard of Poet Lore in 2003 when I was studying with Jody at GW, and she asked me um, to intern there over the summer. Um, so I did, and I kind of fell in love with all the ladies there, and I've kept in touch with them ever since, so I'm excited to be here today. Um, this is a new essay called Air Gun, and I actually just finished it this week, so we will see. Okay. When I was a teenager, I was followed for a while by a man twice my age. He had a sloping head and a gash for a mouth and was enormous, thick-necked and pin-eyed. He had a rumbling cockstroke of a Camaro that he roared in and out of parking lots, including the one at my high school, which he would visit during the day with the intention, I suppose, of finding me. He almost did once. I emerged from a stairwell and stopped, thrumming with adrenaline at the sight of his back. 
I ducked into the stairwell and ran, breathless and dizzy, down the stairs, a wild grin on my face because the only defense I knew was laughter. I was being chased by a monster. I never told anyone who could have helped me about the man. I joked with my friends, whom I trusted, but I didn't tell adults. I didn't tell my family, even after his email came, threatening their safety. I know where you live, he wrote. He wrote that he'd touched me once and felt my blood. He said that he'd felt my fear through the cloth on my back, upon which he'd placed his meaty hand during church prayers one Sunday. I remembered that prayer, which had been meant as a blessing, and his touch, along with the palm touches of the other godly men, hushed in their pressed khakis, their closed-eyed murmurs, and hands like hot stones, and knew he was right, that I had been afraid. But I never told anyone. Whatever was wrong, it was mine to keep. Maybe I could say that this man, all the godly men whose eyes saw fire and sex in me, were the ones who woke my death drive. I could claim a story of innocence tarnished, but I have always loved death eaters, the sight of vultures above a tree line, their patient circling, which might be why, as a child, I turned the barrel of an air rifle to my eye and squeezed the trigger just to see and breathed out the answer, empty. At the time I'm writing this, I've lived in a new city for nine months and been sober for about as long. If I'd gotten pregnant when I first moved, I'd be a new parent by now. And in a way, I am. A parent to myself. A water pourer and vegetable forker. A clumsy caretaker. It was not easy to get sober, as you might imagine. I went through an outpatient program, dutifully peeing in plastic cups, and then handing that warm plastic to strangers every week, swallowing anabuse pills in front of group members every day, and I quit my old city, my jobs there, my apartment, none of which fit into my new life, and all of which I grieved. But that was the deal. I needed to lose it all. I needed to sit in my sister's guest bedroom and stare, baffled, at the gorgeous treetops surrounding her house and feel the vertigo of plummeting from a life. About four months into sobriety, after the summer of plastic cups, I traveled to Shanghai for work. I was surprised. I'd wanted to see Chinese history, but instead I'd found more plastic, a texture so ubiquitous it seemed part of the city's fabric, like concrete or asphalt. Where were the monuments? Not in Shanghai. During that week, the air was more polluted than usual. I felt sick for days. Miles to the north, Beijing closed down, people huddling indoors, breathing, I imagine, with reluctance, their air so opaque they couldn't drive. So I roamed disposable Shanghai, photographing cigarette lighters and polyester pajamas instead of relics. One day a friend took me to the Propaganda Museum, a small collection of Maoist posters stashed in the basement of an unmarked building in an apartment complex. The museum was not easy to find. Leaving the main road, we walked down a private driveway, nodding to a sleepy guard as we passed, around clusters of identical buildings, getting further and further from the street, until my friend saw a door he thought he recognized, though there was no sign on its facade. Once inside, we stepped into an old elevator, which clattered us below ground to a long hallway, at the end of which were two rooms, hung with the hopes and lies of a continent. In outpatient, I learned about nests, the dust-filled spaces where people hide from daylight. I had had mine, of course, a narrow room in Brooklyn about ten paces long, just big enough to fit a desk and drawers, a bed shoved against the window, and stacks of books which I color-coded to look like design features. 
On my windowsill, I had cigarettes, bottle caps, matches, and drinking glasses, which were glazed with the translucent burgundy and gold streaks of dried wine, almost pretty out of context, and crumpled tissues. Somehow I felt proud of the little room, which had everything I thought I needed. I liked to get high and look out the window into the air shaft, peering into the lit-up windows of strangers while they made dinner and talked on the phone. There was nothing better to me than a night hidden indoors, the drugs and wine lighting me up like Christmas. But of course, while unique to me, there was nothing original about my room. In rehab, sitting on sagging couches that hugged the periphery of a shabby room, the type of room you might expect at a modestly funded outpatient program, everyone's feet tapping nervously against the coffee-stained carpet, we all spoke of hideouts. We all shared the same secrets. It did not occur to me until years later to talk about the man from church. At the time, I did not believe it was real. I did not believe he would catch me, and he did not. I've always seen myself like that, as someone who could pull a gun's trigger and hear the relief of a click. Why I persist with the fantasy of light, flight, weightlessness, why my thoughts drift towards air, these questions perplex me, because I'm not immune to disaster. My mind, if untended, will spin me into a 10 by 6 room in which I will methodically poison myself. I'm still adjusting to this knowledge. When I was in Shanghai, I asked my friend, the one who showed me the propaganda museum, if his Chinese friends talked about the revolution, and what did they say? They don't talk, he said, at least not to him. There are certain memories, maybe, that cannot be named. To move forward is to leave a space behind. Most of the propaganda posters were churned into pulp when Mao died. I can imagine it, millions of people working the posters off walls, picking at them with flimsy fingernails, scratching the parts stubbornly stuck with glue, dutifully handing in the sheets which amassed into tons and were trucked to pulp mills soaked in sulfur, a stinging stench as the fibers broke down, and then, what? How do you move on from that? Pale rectangles where the posters once lived must have watched like ghosts from every wall, haunting every street the people walked. Did they speak of the past when they curled up at night, breathing closely in bed? Did they whisper to their children? Where does the past live when it doesn't live in words? When I left my old city, I had no plans. My plan was to get on a train and ride that train to D.C. near where I grew up. Once I was on the train, my plan was to drink wine, mini snack bar bottles that opened with satisfying cracks, like twisting little birds' necks. I cried throughout the four-hour trip, waving strangers off when they floated me alarmed glances. I didn't consider our shared air, our joint trajectories, all of us gliding down the coast together. Because I was sad, my mind had caved in. A month later, wrung out and dry as a laundered dish rag, I returned to my city to pack. I knew I wouldn't be moving back and needed to clean my room for a subletter. But I was surprised by the little space, so much dirtier than I remembered. As I sprayed and wiped surfaces, my nose began to run and my palms grew dark with dust. I was ashamed that so many people, men, friends, had seen it. And now my sister, who had traveled with me to help, was a witness as well. But she worked alongside me steadily, saying nothing, the tact of love. I left the room behind, but it's still in my mind, which built it in the first place. It hovers at the edges, still vacant, roomy enough for another life. I can still sink into that space, and sometimes I do. My room was characterized by silence. 
If I spoke to people, it was through the keyboard, and mostly I didn't bother. I could work through my keyboard, get paid through my keyboard, entertain myself through my keyboard, and so I did. I slept through days, emerging for food and sporadic meetings, only inviting people in on occasion at night when we were, when we were wrapped in the gauze of something or other. And so it was difficult to talk to people when I first moved away. I'd grown unaccustomed to connection. The feelings of others' eyes on me, on my skin, was electric, almost unbearable. When I spoke, my hands shook. But it is possible to become conditioned towards love, to be able to tolerate it again. I don't know why this most basic of gifts hurts to hold, but I know if you place a frozen limb under hot water, the pain can make you gasp. I know you have to stay in the heat to move again. When I was in China, my skin broke out. I told myself it was the pollution, and maybe it was, but really I'd been a mess for months. The breakouts were marks of shame to me, because they'd started when I got sober. I wanted them to be invisible, and since that was not possible, I wanted people to grant me the merciful charade of blindness. What's it? But the Chinese stared frankly at my face. This tea, said a woman in a storefront, bringing her finger close to touching me. Good for the skin. It seemed there was nothing offensive or inoffensive about acknowledging the plane. Flaws were flaws. I was not well. I wonder how many marks we overlook. We carry so many tacit pacts of silence. I wonder about an air gun pointed, not at ourselves, but towards the sky. Released. The resounding crack or click of a bullet or none, harming no one, nothing. If I speak these words and tell you again, I was not well, I was chased, I did harm, yet I'm here. What can be healed? Thank you so much. Our final reader is poet Amy Eisner. I came into contact with her work once we published her poem Ventilation and then nominated it for Pushcart Prize that year. What deeply impressed me was the way in which her poems managed to keep the world in view. In the nominated poem set in a city in India, the speaker mistakes the smell of ginger for something almost human, only to allow the poem to carry her from correcting the perception to focusing on a human and important one, her grandmother, the speaker's grandmother, sighing on soft bones. And much of her work weaves spheres of experience and bridges worlds rapidly and seamlessly until there's little need or desire to separate one from the others. Her body of work also demonstrates a commitment to community. She has worked with artists in the album project with Dennis Farber, which exhibited at MICA, and in Entangled Art and Word, a larger scale artist and writers collaboration. She has been published extensively in American Literary Review, Fence, Green Hills Literary Lantern, Painted Bride Quarterly, Spoon River Poetry Review, Washington Square, Washington Jewish Week, and Nimrod. The list goes on and on. She got her MA in poetry from the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins and has taught creative writing and literature at Maryland Institute College of Art, Johns Hopkins, and the Center for Academically Talented Youth. I'm so proud to present Amy Eisner. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to read when you, when you publish somewhere and that, you know, it's published, who knows if anybody reads it, but to be remembered a couple of years later um, for a poem is, is very special. Thank you very much. Um, and you asked me to read 
that poem that you mentioned, so I will begin with that one. And I'll try to keep myself organized here. Okay, this poem uh, is called Ventilation. In Jewtown, Cochin, the street was full of dust. But what I took a lungful of was pungent, almost human, sharp and close, like a room infused with sleep, damp bedding, sweaty hair. Ginger, I realized later, that was ginger, and the papery rush of a 50-pound sack of tea being dropped from a truck, smoke knocked from the leaves, was my grandmother sinking down, sighing on soft bones, the heat of her body still rising, the mist of her mouth unfazed, each of us spilled and inhaled in desert, jungle, aisle, decades later, filling the lungs of strangers. There's a cheese maker who names his cheeses after girlfriends, exes, and a flower dappled as dice that stinks exactly like fox. In spring, when the calyx bursts, the fox unfurls until there's no fresh air at all. Then every breath is signal. Oil, bark, clay, and salt, moisture in shadow, the blunt animal wind greased with danger. This one is called Filtration. Our water seeps through machines to get clean. Inside the Brita, a welcome mat grows red, is scrubbed. The iron pipes are not. They're corroding, filling themselves from within like a leaky cave. Plink, not even a plink. Water so slow you can't hear it. Water like pearls, like a mole, as round and soft as the tip of a stalactite reaching for its mate. Plonk. Luck is the water inside the mountain, a layer of water and a layer of air. Sometimes there's mud, most pleasing for the making of a cup, for smearing, for to daub, for the poor sucking coolness, the dream of life as a fossil, filtration in reverse, my animal made mineral and pure. The rocks ripple as the lantern wavers and dims. Let's go. The water we can use is farther on. This one is called Welcome to the Cloud. Cherished trail of transactions, report me. Guide my car, stamp my ticket, sign the check. The burbling machines, the tickering. Vast appetite to have and hold, to add to the corridor of record, so raucous everything becomes inaudible, transitory and indelible, as the prick of a tattoo artist setting his colors with syphilitic spit that works its way into the shoulder in the weeks at sea, where the sailors' needlepoint roses, heavy-headed peonies, burst the flowerpot of skin like cigarette ash, like blooms. All these things really happened. <laughs> um, 
if I can find. So as I work with um, with my students, uh, grad students at MICA, one thing I notice is that so many of them, for various reasons, are trying to imagine a non-human-centered aesthetic, some sort of beauty in the absence of humans. Um, what is beauty without humans? How do you tell it? Um, and of course, that always leads back again to what humans do. Um, so. I don't have any answers <laughs> about that, but um, one work of art that interested me in that pursuit is a film called Bistière, um, which has no words um, and is mostly engaged in looking at animals. <clears throat> so uh, this owes a great debt for its imagery to that film um, and also um, probably owes its lack of structure <laughs> to that film as well. Bestiaire. Zebras in a rush, knock-kneed, tap-dancing, the two pairs of legs like dance partners. Ears that reverse, reverse. To know an animal's face, the flat-carved nose, the prancing legs disproportionate, the face ostrich-like, mischief-cheeked, shading and scribbling. To see a person looking intensely makes you look, Drawing from the secret place beneath the hair the face of a horse or something with short horns, smallish, in grasslands, some kind of cow or gazelle, the shape of the real gone as lumpy and strange as the ship's naturalist's sketches, where costume-like creatures parade the artist's hedges against what he wasn't prepared to see. What is a muzzle? How do horns emerge? How can you draw it? unless you kill it first. Steam across a winter landscape. Distant branches erase their distances, twine together like barbed wire. The blue shed with the silver vent. Deliberate piles of earth. The combination of bodies becoming a new body, a herd. Only when humans enter does there appear the shape of an argument. A drum-shaped roller tumbles the dead bird boneless. In sudden stillness, the man in the ochre-flowered sweater keeps track of skin and feathers, inside and out, suctioning, shaving, grinding, polishing, sewing, upholstering the thing. about some Baltimore poems. Here are two poems about uh, Baltimore windows, um, where uh, I, I lived in Baltimore for nine years, and uh, I loved just walking and looking at the windows, which sometimes um, had something extra going on in them. This one's called Painted Window Screen. The plowed field extends right to the water's edge, protected by pilings on one side, but good as flooded on the other. Behind the field, a tiny red house. Two doors, no windows, and so no window screen, like this one, whose willows are shadowed by a distant cloudy cliff, behind which the plaid edge of a curtain hangs, like a sheet of solid rain.
And this one is called Baltimore Window. It was on Gough Street. <clears throat> Dolls in evening dress are dancing in the cool night air on the deck of a ship. A tiny disco ball scatters the light from the pink candelabra on a footed table. Barbie stares back at her gray-headed partner, but Christy looks out at me. Someone has straightened her hair and placed a heavy enamel locket around her neck. What's inside? A heartthrob? A tiny watch? If she sprang it open, the force would knock her flat and turn her face to the wrapping paper sky, its celestial gears descending from the reflected leaves of the maple, where planets dangle like small, hot peaches. Spring me, says the lock. Spring me, say the peaches. And just because of the timing, I'll give you a poem that was given to me through my open window on Easter morning, 4.17 a.m. It's two, two male voices. I haven't changed a word. It's perfect haiku. Husband, shame on you. I'm going to kick you around. The birds are chirping. <laughs> the time? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for being here. Please come to the table and talk to us. My coworker is over here, yeah, from the Writer Center and Poelor. If you want to hear more, I um, hope I get to know you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.